and I'm sitting there and you know when God shows up uh, it is impossible to deny his presence absolutely and I heard very clearly the following words God said go rebuild my church which you see is broken Welcome to Kingdom Unleashed. Uh, this is such a profound interview with Dr. Cornei Becker, the Dean of the Divinity School of Regent University in the United States. I sense the presence of God all over this interview where he shares some of his backstory of his call to rebuild the church and how God strips away things from our lives which are not of him. He also shares some of the pitfalls which cause the fivefold ministry gifts to become dysfunctional and the danger of only connecting with those who are like you. Enjoy this challenging conversation. It's such an honor uh, to have Dr. Cornei Becker to join me on this Kingdom Unleashed interview, Kingdom Unleashed uh, YouTube channels about reviving the church, unlocking the fivefold and equipping the saints. Cornet, it's great to have you with me. Thank you so much, Andre. It's a great privilege. <laughs> no, awesome. So I, I, I listened to a bit of your podcast. It's called Voices of Renewal, and I was just so inspired. Uh, just love the, the, the way you're doing the interviews with church history experts on key figures from the past, like uh, John Wesley, St. Francis of Assisi, Jonathan Edwards, and others. Um, just really want to encourage people to check that out. It's called Voices of Renewal. And uh, uh, Cornet is the Dean and Professor of Regent University School of Divinity, a highly influential university in the United States. And Cornet is originally from uh, South Africa. So thank Deep you. Uh, <laughs> it's great to have you with me. And, and, and your life and ministry has played a massive role in the Shofar Church family and in my life. I can still remember 20 years ago, you were uh, speaking at a conference, a breakout session, and you know some of the speakers were speaking quite a bit of fluff and <laughs> random things, and you just brought it back to Christ, the foundation of the church, and uh, just, just it still stuck it stuck with me 20 years. So yeah, great to, great to have you with us. And so I want to, uh, we're going to start off with just a bit of your backstory and hear what formed you, molded you, and then we're going to go into some really controversial, some controversial things and then get to how to grow as a teacher. Okay. So Cornet, share about your journey, your walk with God, uh, some of your significant encounters with God that formed you. Right. Andre, once again, thank you for the absolute privilege. Um, uh, I really despise introductions uh, for the simple reason, how can anybody live up to any of that? I think the best thing that we can say about ourselves is that we are sinners saved by grace and that it's only by the grace of God. When I reflect back on my own formation, um, it is not really a story or a testimony about myself, but God's just extraordinary providence. You know, the Apostle Paul writes in the letter to the church in Rome, and he says, for whom God has foreknown, he is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And I know that word predestined has given us all kinds of theological fits throughout the history. But in essence, this is what Paul says. Paul says, 
that before the foundation of the earth, God knew about us, that we've been in the Lord's heart and that he's prepared for us, literally that word predestined in both the Greek and the English in a very simplified manner simply means that there's a predestiny prepared for each and every one of us. Um, a little bit later or earlier, actually, in the text, Paul says, knowing this, we know that all things work together for good to those who are the loved of God, are called, who are called according to his purpose. And when I reflect back on my life, um, it is a true testimony of God's sovereign choice of each and every one of us and his grace and mercy upon my life. As you can hear from my accent, <clears throat> I was born in South Africa. It's an extraordinary thing that um, once you're 12 years old, it's very difficult to kind of lose that accent. And I've had to make peace with it. Uh, I grew up in a tiny little mining town and what at that point in time was the Western Transvaal. Today, uh, Northwest Province, um, a little town called Clarksop. My family has lived there for about 150 years. Uh, grew up in a very staunch, typical, culturally Christian home, a Dutch Reformed community. Um, also grew up in a highly dysfunctional situation, and I don't want to say too much about that. Love my parents, love my family, but it was a family broken by sin and dysfunction. It was in that context that I had a radical conversion experience at the age of 13. And a little bit later on, at the age of 15, I had an experience with the Holy Spirit. And um, I remember at that point in time, my, my knowledge of Scripture, of course, was just very, very slim and, and certainly extraordinarily shallow. And so when I received an infilling of the Holy Spirit, a further empowering, I'm the first person that I ever heard speak or pray in tongues. And um, I, I was quite, I was somewhat convinced that I'm the first one in 2000 years after Pentecost um, did not know there's such a thing as a Pentecostal community or charismatic community. Yet God worked within my life. Um, I found my way um, to Johannesburg, where I lived for the next 17, 18 years, serving um, at a large multi-ethnic, uh, non-denominational, charismatic community. And um, at the same time, went to university at that time. And Andre, to be quite honest with you, I never imagined that I would be teaching at a university or or serve as, as, as a professor. That was certainly not my plan. I actually just wanted to go to the shortest Bible college that I could find. At that moment in time, I used to say two parts of God's name is go, right? I just wanted to go into the mission field as quickly as possible. But um, my mother encouraged me, maybe the right word is threatened, and um, say, you really have to go to university. And um, I was quite honestly a terrible student. I I, I do want to say that. And um, uh, did some undergrad work in um, biblical languages, Greek, Hebrew, 
um, a little bit of Arabic and Latin and so forth, and a little bit of biblical studies. And when I was done, went to the Bible college that I always wanted to go to. And um, and 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 you speak about pivotal moments. Um, in my final year of undergrad studies, I had an opportunity to study abroad and 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 go on a trip and won't tell the whole story. But at that moment in time, I was pretty disillusioned with ministry and pretty disillusioned with church. I knew enough of the gospels at that time to know that what I was seeing in the church, in leadership, um, was highly dysfunctional. And I knew that it did not match up with the call of God. And you know what typically happens, Andre, and I'm sure you have seen this in your own experience and as as you've worked with people, a lot of knowledge without compassion is a terrible thing, right? And so often what happens if there's not a call that motivates the knowledge, we simply become folks that pontificate and folks that are highly critical. And at that point in time, that was me, strident, arrogant, proudful, critical. I could tell you what was wrong with the whole white world and with everyone. And what was amazing at that point in time is that I've done very little service for the church. And um, I remember very vividly, it was a July morning, I was traveling in Italy, and ended up in a tiny little town in uh, Umbria, in, in in that area, and a, a town called Assisi. And for anybody that's familiar with church history would know there's a great figure that in the 13th century emerged out of that town as a reformer of the church. Of course, the very famous Francis of Assisi, quite honestly, uh, growing up Dutch reformed, being part of a charismatic community, I knew when I say nothing, Francis, absolutely nothing. Uh, but I was a tourist, right? And I ended up in a tiny little church in the outskirts of Assisi, a church um, in Italian that's called San Damiano, uh, a church of St. Damien, a tiny very, very tiny little church, probably no more than 20, 25, maybe 30 people could fit into it. And I remember it was a very hot day, and I sat down in the church, and I was in a foul mood at that point in time, uh, that my arrogance and proudful youth uh, got me into a spiral of negativity. And I remember I was thinking, and I actually made the decision not to enter ministry. I made the decision to go in an entirely different route. And Andre, it was at that moment, within a split second, that God showed up. His presence. Uh, Later on, I would realize why there was such a profound presence of God in this little church. There's a praying community that has prayed for 800 years, 24-7 in that space right adjacent to it. And I'm sitting there, and you know, when God shows up, uh, it is impossible to deny his presence. Absolutely. And I heard very clearly the following words. God said, go rebuild my church, which you see is broken. 
I didn't realize it was only much, much many years later that I recognized that something very similar happened uh, to Francis, um, a young man that was not a follower of Christ, a young man that grew up in a very wealthy family, and in actual fact, um, um, was on his way, was part of the Fifth Crusade and wanted to go to the Holy Land so that he could come back and be knighted. At that point in time, he was not a follower of Christ, but was interested only in wine, women, and song. And he thought that a, a beautiful knight suit would give him more wine, women, and allow him to sing quite a fair bit more. And he, 800 years before that time, he bowed, he knelt down in a broken church and prayed a very dysfunctional prayer. That prayer at that moment in time in this church um, happened. The church was entirely derelict. Uh, in actual fact, it was a church where lepers used to meet. And he prayed and he said, God, make me famous. And, um, and an ancient painted Russian crucifix that was laying on the ground from the ninth century. Francis said he heard a voice that said the same thing, go and rebuild my church, which you see lay in ruins. That was a pivotal change for me. And I speak of that moment, this is July of 1989, as my second conversion. And it's a conversion to obedience, a conversion to the Lordship of Jesus. And when I think back on the words that I heard right there, that echo of the Spirit, a, a, a number of things that's very, very important here. Firstly, it is true that my eyes were open, that I could see the brokenness of the church. And all that I wanted to do was judge, sit in the seat of God, and then walk away um, from that. But the Lord says, go and participate in my rebuilding of the church. Uh, during that time, I then discovered the prayer that Francis prayed during that time. And you've often heard of the peace prayer of St. Francis, right, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Fascinatingly, that is not the prayer. Uh, actual fact, Francis didn't even write that. It was written in 1918 by a Benedictine attributing it to the history of the Franciscan movement. But here's the prayer that he prayed. And that prayer has settled within my heart as a desire to follow Christ. And the prayer very simply says this, Most high and glorious God, enlighten the darkness of my heart and give me correct faith, certain hope, perfect charity so that I may go forth and perform your holy command and will. And the point here is <clears throat> that the call to ministry is not a call to bring our gifts or opinions or knowledge uh, or even our own personal wisdom. It is a call to radical obedience. And Andre, that was probably, apart from my conversion, the most significant experience. Um, it's pretty hard to believe that that is almost 35 years ago. Yeah. And in the last 35 years, um, I have attempted to follow Christ, often imperfectly, often have made unbearable mistakes. 
But what I can say is that God's grace has been upon me. And probably the most important thing for our discussion here today is that I've recognized that there's really just one ministry in this world, and it's the ministry of Jesus. And whatever he's asked me to do is a participation in his ministry. I do want to say to you that in the last 35 years, what really has happened with me is that it's been a stripping process. Um, I don't think any of us initially step into ministry or leadership for the right reasons. But I think God still accepts us. I think he still calls us. But during that time, there's a stripping away that happens so that we would become like John the Baptist and say, less of me, more of him. As the psalmist cries out, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name, give glory. And so it's been an adventure uh, for this last 35 years in um, growing, seeing quite oftenly and very stark reality, my own failures, and yet to be taken by the greatness of God. No, I can go beautiful. on, but I'll, I'll no, stop. I believe, I believe you can. You are a teacher indeed. Mm. That is powerful, um, Kurnay, because, you know, I think what, because the way you, you, you're an untypical teacher. <laughs> There's an anointing on your life that brings a deep conviction. Whenever you preach, it's like, I find mm. sin in my life that I didn't know is there. And that for me speaks of exactly what you're saying now, you know, 35 years of a stripping away of a surrender. And I see that in your life. I see that in your ministry. I see that on the anointing on your life. And I, I just so resonate with what you're saying in terms of the church, the state of the church, because that's been bothering me for many years. And that's why we're doing this, you know, this uh, fivefold ministry Academy. And that's why I want to do these interviews because we want to, want to help the body of Christ to move into the fullness of Christ. Cause I believe in the church and I know you believe in the church and uh, yeah. So thanks. That is, that is just really uh, powerful. And, um, and they are the call to obedience. So the call to surrender, the call to allowing God to strip away what's not of him. So, I mean, is, is that where it started for you, that encounter? Into, I mean, you love history and, mm. you know, is, is that where it started, your love for church history? Give me a bit of an idea of where that developed. Right. So uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing uh, that happened with me during that time. Um, so often we get so focused on our own time period and our own interests and obsessions that we forget that we are part of a living community. My formal education actually is, is in um, ancient Near Eastern history and languages. It's only a little bit later on that I moved over to theology. And I think the reason for this is, and I'll, I'll tell a quick humorous story, um, over the last number of years, I've taught a study abroad trip for students in which we go to Rome. And we spend a few weeks there looking at the first 300 years of the church. And it was fascinating the one time I had um, a young student <laughs> on the very first day, right, uh, came to me and said to me, Professor, I just want to let you know that I really, really hate history. And I thought, man, you lack what I would call situational intelligence. Where are you? And right, who are you speaking to? And, and, and I then stopped and I said, 
um, so let me ask you a few questions. Are you a Christian, right? And and she said, yes, I am. I said, do you have your Bible with you? Yes, I do. I said, every time you open the Bible, right, you are dealing with historic realities. And, and this is the very nature of our Christian faith, that our Christian faith is not made up of mere platitudes. It is not made up of mere philosophical tenets. The essence of the Christian faith is that it's steeped in history. If you think about uh, the creed, the Athanasius creed, uh, when you think of the Apostles' Creed, finally the Nicene Creed, um, within that creed are historical statements. I believe or we believe in Jesus Christ, born from the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why would that historical little bit of information be included within that creed? Because Christianity is radically different from other heretical systems that separates God's action from historical truth. The claim of Christianity is deeply, and let me introduce this term, incarnational. And, and that, is, that is what I'm deeply interested in. My son is going to be 23 this year, and when he was much younger. He used to um, kind of tease me with this. And uh, one of his friends asked him, well, what does your dad do? And this is what he said. He said he studies dead people. And uh, I, and, and this is what I said to him. I said, Jonathan, in, in one aspect, you're correct. But actually, you know, uh, there's a much larger reality when you start to think about it. Um, these people are not dead, they are alive in Christ. They, uh, they are part of this cloud of witnesses and their lives continue to speak. The reason why I'm passionate about the history of the church is because of God's love for the church, number one. But secondly, Andre, and I think this is really the key. I'm deeply interested, as the prophet Habakkuk prayed, to discover what God has done in the history and then to ask him to do it in our time again. The study of the history of the church and the patriarchs and of Israel is not merely a study of people or movements. It's a study of God. It's in essence an opportunity to observe God in action. And then to ask the question, can you do it in our midst? What I love about the study of history, whether that be biblical history or the history of the church, is it removes from us what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery, right? Where we tend to think that we are the first ones that got it right. Uh, there's a humbling that occurs and an education in doing that. And... Um, I'm also reminded of that beautiful text in the prologue of John's gospel, where John in verse 14 then turns around and he says, and the word, and again, he's speaking about history, it became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's that dwelling of the word of God, that enfleshment of the word of God in history that I'm interested in. And John then goes on and he says, and in that enfleshment, in that dwelling, we have seen the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Church history is an opportunity to be educated in the dwelling incarnational glory of God.
and so that it might happen in our time as well. Yeah, that's good. I love you. I love your your the perspective you bring. Uh, you make history alive, and mm. uh, and and I think what we sort of miss to if if we don't know history, what God did before, we tend to miss what God is doing now. And Absolutely. that's what I'm seeing, you know, it's like, but God's doing something now and people are like, this is wrong, you know, and, but if you look at history, no, God's done this before. It's not new. No. You know, so I, I yeah, love your, your love for history and for connecting us with the past. Now, as I said to you, for me, Corna, you're an untypical teacher. It's like you're a teacher, you bring all of that to the table. But for me, you're a prophetic voice. You know, you you have a prophetic anointing and grace upon your life. It's like you're calling the church back to Christ. That's why I say every time when you speak, I want to cry. <laughs> you know, I, I think it was in 2019, you were ministering one of our churches. I, I was just weeping right through the service, service. And then you prayed over me and prophesied over me, you know, in a sense, saying breathe life into the church. You know, you, you, I really felt a commissioning. Mm. Um, and I've been running with that for the last four four plus years and so that prophetic aspect to you has there been an encounter where you experienced that or maybe you can you know unpack a little bit but the fivefold in general how you see it but i really sense a strong prophetic aspect to your ministry so where does that come from how, how do you see that it's tremendously important, and thank you, Andre. Within, as you set up this question, you yourself already introduced some very important biblical ideas. So we have to remember <clears throat> that uh, the fivefold ministry, and 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 I'm going to backtrack here just a little bit. This idea, of course, of the fivefold ministry comes uh, in 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 the best and the clearest way from one of the Apostle Paul's letters to the church, in particularly here, uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus, in which he describes God's desire to bring us to the unity of the faith and to spiritual maturity. This is a tremendously important component to the fivefold ministry. We have to remember that the fivefold ministry is given by God for a purpose. The moment that we elevate any of these offices as an object, as a thing, as an aim, as an end in itself, it becomes ultimately dysfunctional. The purpose of these gifts, and may I just say, these ministry gifts are given, I'll come back to that in a moment, they are given with the purpose to build up the church. And often I have noticed that we have elevated, isolated these ministry gifts and make them the object of our adoration or the object of our fascination. It becomes a very dysfunctional thing when we don't realize the reason why we have received this. The second thing that we need to remember, right? So there's an aim, there's a purpose for these gifts. These gifts are there to build up the church. Let me let me use an example here, somewhat of an anecdotal example. At this point in time, um, I serve as the dean here of a graduate school of divinity. And I often tell our faculty this, that God's first plan is not the academy. It's not the seminary. It's not the university. God's first plan is the church. It's also his last plan. 
In that sense, the moment that a seminary or a Bible college or a university or a school of divinity becomes an end in itself, it becomes dysfunctional. It becomes a cesspool of our own opinions. It's of tremendous importance that we position ourselves with a stance to serve. And all fivefold ministry, we must remember, is there to serve the church. The church is primary. It's God's first and God's last plan. Now, in God's desire to renew the church, and that idea of renew is, of course, not to make something new that's novel that's never happened, but rather to renew it back to holiness, to the original intent for which God created us. The Apostle Paul says this, and he's not alone. We, we find beautiful, unified uh, witness of this in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. But he says that when Christ ascended, he gave. He gave, which means these gifts are given. And one of the greatest dangerous things that I've seen in the church is that we look at people and we ask them to complete personality preference questionnaires, or we look at their natural orientation and we say, that must be the gift that you have. The gifts are not natural. The gifts in many ways often contradict somewhat of our natural tendencies or preferences. And in my own life, uh, the, the two primary gifts that has operated uh, in my life, and you are correct, is primarily teaching, but ever so often uh, a prophetic kind of um, dimension uh, to that. Both those gifts are not based on my natural tendencies, gifts, or talents. This might come as somewhat of a shock, but um, as a young man, the last thing that I ever wanted to do was to speak in front of people. Teaching was the furthest thing from my mind. The original plan, in actual fact, was to involve to be involved with music. I was trained as a classical pianist, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play, and I wanted to teach music, and, and that's really, but there was no desire to be a public speaker and speak in front of folks. In actual fact, that was probably my greatest fear. But it's interesting, at that moment of radical obedience, God started to open doors. It's not something that I really sought out, something that I... Uh, that I said, I am going to pursue. It It was a supernatural gift given. And, and the same thing whenever there's been a prophetic dimension to all of that. Um, these are supernatural gifts given. Now, can you nurture it? Yes. Can you surrender to it? Yes. Can it be fine-tuned and trained? Absolutely. But the key remains the same. The key remains... <clears throat> Very simply, in a radical, and let me go on with this, not qualified surrender. And what I mean by that is that once you hear the call of God, once you discern, once your ears are open and your eyes are open, and you receive that gift, the only way that you can nurture it in development is in radical obedience to say yes. And let me add to this as well. 
one of the greatest dangers in the church is when we simply do what we are good at doing. I had this conversation, uh, actually back this week, we have our PhD students on campus as part of their residency requirements. And a lecture that I'll give in about three hours from now is about the development of competencies. And here's the truth. Um, no competency is developed when we do what we are comfortable in doing, when we do in what we know. Then we're simply just repeating existing strengths and existing gifts that we have. But true competencies happen when we are called beyond ourselves, when we come to the end of ourselves. And Andre, I'm sure you can tell story upon story upon story where God has thrusted you into a situation where you looked at it and you say, I know that I'm wholly unable to do what God is asking of me. And when we venture into that place of radical obedience, something extraordinary happens. That gift is activated. That gift comes into operation. Not only does that gift start with that radical obedience, yes. And, and as I said, unqualified. So not a yes if, a yes but, or a yes, I can do this, but not that. But simply, here I am. I am surrendered. Let it be to me according to your word. But the nurturing of the gift happens with radical obedience. There are stages of obedience. Our obedience always have greater dimension. There are more things that we need to say yes to and surrender to. And so for me, the development of both those gifts have truly lied in God calling me to do something that I'm wholly uncomfortable with that I didn't believe I was able to do. And the gifts have been developed and nurtured in these stages of radical surrender and obedience to what he asks of us. I hope that makes sense. Yes. Amen. That's good. I so, I so agree with you that, you know, it's not, not personality, you know, it's like for me 10 years ago, I actually had no idea who I was until I, until I was actually exposed to the prophetic grace, prophetic gift. And suddenly God started to speak. I was in the full-time ministry for 10 years and I didn't know who I really was in terms of the fivefold and what God wanted to do in me. And I think many, many full-time ministers actually don't know who they really are in, in, in Christ. We tend to just do what we've always done. And, and so I, I, I so agree with what you're saying, you know, God in, in God speaking to one and obviously I, often through other gifts as well in the body of Christ, he reveals like, I mean, mm -hmm. that prophetic word you spoke over me was a defining moment of my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I had an encounter with God, God through you, you know, and, and I just realized that we need that every believer needs that if we're going to walk in the fullness of God. Um, so, so Cornet, in terms of the fivefold, other gifts impacting your life or encounters through people, or how would you say the importance of the fivefold in your life in terms of having received from others? Absolutely. And so a, a couple of quick observations here. I think the first thing that we need to remember <clears throat> is that the fivefold administration of ministry is not man-made. It is not administrated by man. 
and it's certainly not designed and implemented by man. And, and probably one of the greatest mistakes that we can make is to look at the fivefold and say, I am going to arrange, right? So I'm putting a church together and I'm going to make sure there are folks that are sent, there are folks that can pastor, that can teach, that can prophesy, that can evangelize. We need to remember that these gifts are once again given by Christ. And it's fascinating what the Apostle Paul says. He said it's in that moment of ascension. That means when Christ takes his place as Lord of the church, it's in his enthronement. Uh, the evangelist John uses a very particular term with regards to the ascension. It's 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 kind of suggested in the Gospel of John, but it's certainly deeply manifested in in the in the book of Revelation. And the word here is 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 pantocrator. He is over all of creation. It's an extraordinarily rich word. And and once we recognize that it's Christ who gives and orchestrates, a number of things happen here. Um, firstly, we don't desire to try to manipulate any of that. The second thing is all competitiveness goes out of the window. Um, as you know, men are competitive, sometimes competitive animals, right? We want to compete with everything and we we try to outdo one another. Once you recognize that it's Christ that gives these gifts and he orchestrates all of that, you surrender to his wisdom. Now, here's the thing. The church can only grow to the fullness of faith and the maturity of the holiness of God when we allow Christ to be Lord, when we recognize that he is king. It is the beginning of salvation. It is also the consummation of salvation. The very first sermon that Jesus preached is in Mark's gospel, and it's the shorter sermon. It's one verse long. And in that sermon, he very simply just says this. He says, the time is now, the kingdom of God is here or close at hand. What is he saying? Christ is here to rule. And once we recognize that, we surrender to those giftings. It is not possible to grow to full maturity unless we surrender to the Lordship of Christ and the gifts that he places within the body. Now, here's the thing. We need, individually and corporately, the grace and the ministry of all of the fivefold. Now, it's a bit more complex than just fivefold, and maybe later I, I can say a few words about it. There are some scholars that think maybe there's really just four, and I'll, I'll come back to that in, in, in some ways. But the point here that I think that needs to be made is that all of us need to, as we submit to the Lordship of Jesus, we submit to the giftings that he places within the church. Here's the truth. Nobody is transformed when they are alone. When we are alone, we only become stranger than what we are already. We are in desperate need of the ministry of the body and all of that fivefold ministry to bring forth all of that. The moment that you recognize that you look at people differently, you look at leadership differently. You look at other ministers 
differently. It's interesting, um, and two quick anecdotal um, stories from church history that really illustrates this. Uh, one of the Desert Fathers, there was a massive revival in the 4th and the 5th century, and it became known as the Desert Fathers and Mothers Revival. Uh, we don't have enough time to go and why it was called that, but suffice to say, this was a movement by the Holy Spirit where people were called out of cities to go into dry places to face the demons so that they would be trained and ready to go forth in ministry. It, it spawned um, out of that, it resulted in one of the largest evangelistic renewals in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries later on. But during the time of formation, one of the Desert Fathers says, you must take great care to see who stands next to you, because you don't know whom the Spirit may speak through next. And it's that receptiveness, right, to the gifts, the receptiveness of receiving from God and to receive from those gifts. So I can honestly say that all of the fivefold ministry has had an extraordinary impact in my own formation and continues to be. Now, there are some dangers in the position that I find myself in because I'm surrounded by teachers, uh, by the necessity of the work that I do. And it can become very, very dangerous, um, and I can it can become very lopsided. So one of the things that I take great intentional care in is to immerse myself in the church. Um, it is incredibly dangerous not to be a member of a vibrant church and receive ministry myself on a regular basis. No, that's good. Uh, so a few things. So what you're saying is, is that, you know, someone can't say, hey, I want to be an apostle. <laughs> it is Christ given, which should be obvious, um, but it's not obvious for everyone. <laughs> and that's, I think, why people also do titles and they claim themselves to be something. And uh, and I agree with you. I think the danger for teachers to be only together is the same prophets together, apostolic people together, evangelists, or the, the danger is when we cut ourselves off from others, we find ourselves to become distorted and, and unbalanced, you know? So, yeah, that was great. A bit of the backstory, Cornet, that's mm -hmm. awesome. In the next session, we're going to tackle a few uh, interesting topics like cancel culture, the biggest problem in the church, those kind of things. So uh, we're going to continue in the next session. Let's each take up that call to rebuild the church, which is broken. Dr. Cornet reveals concisely the danger of only spending time with and receiving from those who are like us or who have the same passions. We tend to mostly read books and listen to those who are like us or who speak into our primary passions. Yet what we truly need for maturity in the body of Christ to rebuild the church of Jesus Christ is to challenge ourselves to listen and to learn from the other fivefold gifts and also gifts from different parts of the body of Christ. This is what Kingdom Unleashed is about. This channel is to help the body of Christ be exposed to the different fivefold gifts so that the church can be revived. Subscribe if you want more content like this. Join me on part two of this profound interview. Dr. Cornet Baker answers the question of what the ultimate 
danger is in the church. This next session will certainly challenge you. It is like healing balm from heaven to the Lord's broken church.